Welcome to another episode of the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame podcast. I'm your host, Chris May. Today we hear from the man who hit arguably the most famous shot in Indiana high school basketball history. He led Milan to a 1954 state championship win over Muncie Central on March 20th, 1954 at the Butler Fieldhouse. His last second game-winning shot and the Milan team were the basis for Jimmy Chitwood and the Hickory Huskers in that world-renowned movie Hoosiers. He was the first man in Indiana history to win the Triple Crown of a state championship, the prestigious Trestor Award for Mental Attitude, and be named Indiana's Mr. Basketball. He played for Hall of Fame coach Tony Hinkle at Butler, and he graduated as Butler's all-time leading scorer with 1,437 career points. Of course, it is Bobby Plump, and he's going to tell us about growing up in suburban Milan, amongst many other stories, including that famous last-second play. Here, the words, the life, the story of Bobby Plump. What really led you to pick up a basketball? Well, growing up in a small community, and I, I didn't grow up in Milan. I grew up in a town called Pierceville, and there were 75 maybe on a good day in our town. And there wasn't a lot to do. Uh, but I remember as, uh, when I was a young child uh, sitting in the stands because we played the county tourney at Milan. We had a gymnasium that seated 1,000. And I, I remember the uh, games, and I thought, you know, if I could just be good enough to get a uniform and sit on the bench of the varsity, man, my life would be complete. And when I was in the third or fourth grade, my father, uh, who taught school for 20 years, and then mom died when I was five, so he had to quit teaching school, couldn't make enough money, and went to work in a pump factory. And one Christmas, when I was either the third or fourth grade, he built a backboard and, a, a, and attached a goal and gave me a basketball for Christmas. And I had the first goal in Pierceville, Indiana, and there were four of us that grew up in that little town of Pierceville that ended up playing for the state finals in 1954 and winning it, and they all came over and played in our, uh, I had it right next to the uh, house, and it was up on maybe eight or nine feet. It was the highest place we could put it, but we didn't have any running water, and we had a pump, and it, and it had sprockets in it like this for the chain. We only had one ball, and it was right next to where the goal was, yeah, maybe 10 feet, but if the ball hit over there and got punctured, we had to wait until we could get enough money to get another ball so we could play some more. So it, it was something to do. Uh, there wasn't a lot of things to do back then. We had no TV. I never had a telephone when I graduated from high school. Didn't have any running water. So we found our own activity. We either fished, played baseball, or played basketball. And uh, it, it would just seem natural because everybody was interested in basketball at Milan. Uh, it, 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 was, it was just part of the tradition to try to be able to be on the varsity. And uh, fortunately, it worked out for us. Tell us about the support of basketball in Milan. It sounds like that environment really made a lot of kids want to play basketball. Uh, well, not just Milan. Uh, there were nine uh, schools in the county. The largest, of course, was Batesville. They, their town was 5,000. The rest of them, Milan was about 1,100 and something. Osgood, Versailles, about that size. And the others were smaller. Everybody played basketball. Uh, to give you an idea of the interest uh, back in 1953, when we had a coaching change, 
the principal had fired Mr. Grinstead after we had the best season in Milan's here. By the way, they fired superintendent later, but uh, when Woody called the first practice, there were 74 boys in the top four grades at Milan, 58 of them came out for basketball. That's the type of interest uh, that was there. Again, uh, we only had three sports back in the 50s. Uh, from the small school especially. We played baseball, not in the spring, but the fall. Basketball in the winter ran track in the spring. And we couldn't have baseball and track at the same season because we didn't have enough kids. So it, it, it was just a normal type thing that you, if you had the gift of eye-hand coordination and were fortunate enough to be on the team, you really were kind of a hero. Uh, a small town hero, but, but people paid attention. And, and you have to understand, Milan uh, had a great history in basketball, but it was too big for us in Pierceville. In 1947, Chris Volz, who had a GM dealership in Milan, opened a new dealership. I didn't go because Milan was too big. And a lot of the kids at Milan didn't like us too much. Uh, we were kind of the other side of the track kids until they found out we could play basketball. I remember two of my teammates, and I won't name them, but I, I remember it well. We didn't have any money. Well, nobody did, really. Uh, but my sister, who, who ended up raising me when Mom died, bought me a, a snow outfit, and it was, yeah, it was neat. It was warm, had a little cap and thing. So I wore it to school. We were in maybe third or fourth grade. And... Two of my teammates and another guy from Milan started laughing at me and said, hey, you sissy, you wearing that? And they rubbed my face in the snow and thing. You know, it's amazing. I never forgot that. But they did. I told them about that when we were playing, and they said, oh, no, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. I said, ha, ha, yeah, it was. But as soon as they found out we could play basketball, we were accepted. So it was a means of being recognized uh, when there weren't very many other ways to be recognized. So early on, did you prefer to play in the high school gym, or did you like playing outdoors? Oh, we loved playing in the high school gym because it was smooth. <laughs> we didn't have to worry about any rocks or sideways things. Uh, and it, by the way, later, a couple of years later, Roger Schroeder's dad owned a store in uh, Pierceville, and they had everything. They sold TVs and uh, groceries, post office. And they put one, it was 10 feet, but it was a gravel alleyway. And so we played on gravel and, you know, you didn't want to fall down too much there. And the real, uh, the real danger of that one was they raised, uh, they had three uh, cows and the manure pile was to the left-hand side of the goal. Well, I'm going to tell you what, when you drove to the left side, you found yourself in the manure pile. and. and you know, people say, well, well, that must be awful. And I say, no, nah, it wasn't bad. They didn't guard you too closely after that. You make it sound like you played basketball whenever and wherever you could as a kid. Oh, there was no question about it. Uh, and, and, and when you have a little bit of ability, uh, obviously you want to do that. And, and the other, uh, we played against, uh, in Pierceville, we played against guys that were 10 years older than us. We played against guys that were a little younger than us because... There were only four of us in that uh, category of our age, but it was fun. You know, you got to compete against the people that you knew. 
uh, and if you could beat them, and fortunately I was able to do that a lot, uh, you kind of enjoy that. But they liked playing also because, again, it was the, there wasn't much to do, all right? So we would play, uh, as I said, baseball uh, until it got dark. And we didn't have electricity when I first got to, uh, we didn't have electricity until I was uh, 12 years old, 13, I think. But Schroeder's did. So when they got it, we put a, uh, a shovel up with a handle out here and we put uh, tin over the side and hung a uh, light bulb up there. So we played baseball until it got dark and then we'd go over and play basketball at Schroeder's. You know, when you make your own fun, you really enjoy it. It's not something that people say, hey, you ought to do this, you ought to do that. We wanted to do this. What can you tell us about your high school coach, Marvin Wood? Well, <clears throat> Woody was, and that's what we call him, was Woody. He was only eight years old, uh, older than we were. He practiced with us. In fact, he broke my nose once and he quit practicing with us after that. But it really was marvelous playing for uh, Marvin Wood. He was the first coach in our area that really emphasized fundamentals because he played for Mr. Hinkle at Butler University. And when he came there, we learned more, and this is nothing against the other coaches because we learned under them also, but he just took it to a different level. We learned more really in the first half of a year than we did previously in all the years we played. Uh, and he made it fun while we were doing it. He was strict, never raised his voice, uh, always calm. If his voice just went a little bit up, you knew he meant business. I never heard the man cuss, never saw him get off the bench in a game or uh, anything. And when I say he made it uh, fun uh, to play and practice, that's true, except the practices were pretty difficult. Uh, one of the things that he did when he first came there we never scrimmaged or played against each other for the first week. I mean, we were dribbling in between chairs and we were doing hands and we were doing things on defense, but no scrimmage. And that had never happened before. Uh, and then when we started in the games and we started against our competition, we knew that he had something because we were winning pretty handily except for the first five games, he tried to change us from a zone defense to a man-to-man. -man. Believe it or not, Marvin had never played a zone defense in his life. Mr. Hinkle didn't like it. They didn't play it in high school. And we had never played a man-to-man. -man. So here we are, and he's going to teach us the man-to-man -man defense. Well, out of the first four games, I think we lost two of them. And this is what made Woody so great. He didn't have an ego and didn't think he knew everything. Since he had never played his zone and we had uh, never played a man-to-man, -man, he went to Mark Combs, who was our eighth grade coach, seventh and eighth grade coach, and he taught us the zone defense, 2-1-2 two, two zone. He went down to Mark and he said, Mark, would you come up and teach these kids the zone defense? And he said, no, I don't have to. They already know it. And he said, well, I don't. Would you come up and teach me the zone defense? So he didn't have that. Uh, attitude that I know it all. If he didn't know what was going on, he found the answers. Mark Combs then became our, uh, an assistant. Well, he was listed as athletic uh, trainer, but he was an assistant coach along with Clarence Kelly. That made Marvin stand out. And in addition to that, he was innovative. 
one of the reasons we had success in the tournament was due to the fact that he didn't want us to get hurt in the last game of the season when we were juniors. And to give a little uh, history, I mean, the rivalries were tremendous back then. We had a thousand season ticket holders and the gym seated a thousand. We played most of our games at, at Versailles because they seated 2,000, so we had a, played our home games there. And to give you an idea of the interest, now 1,000 season ticket holders, there were six members in my family. Players got two tickets. Those 1,000 season ticket holders got drawn out of a hat. If you didn't get drawn out, you didn't get a ticket. My family, my brothers and sisters, had to go to neighboring towns in order to get tickets for the regionals, the semifinals, and the state finals, because you only got 500 tickets. And that doesn't go around to 1,000 people. Woody was so innovative, back to the uh, story. Osgood, our sophomore year, when Mr. Grinstead was a coach, Osgood beat us the second game of the season, something like 82 to 44. Mr. Grinstead kicked off seven seniors in the dressing room, took the uniform. I'm sitting back. I was a very shy, bashful kid in high school. I could, I'm, I'm sitting back here thinking, man, I, I don't know if I want to play anymore or not. He took the uniforms. Seven of them, gone. Coaches are pretty smart. He brought the two best back, brought myself and Bob Engel up to the starting five, and we ended up with the best season we had ever had. If there was one thing Coach Wood taught you, what would you say that was? Well, he taught us a lot of things, but one of the most important things that he taught us uh, was that there's always a chance to win. There's always a chance to win. No matter what happened in the last game, you've got another game to go, and there's always a chance to win. And that registered with us. We never went on the floor thinking we were going to lose, but because of his leadership, he instilled in us the confidence to play the game and, and see what the results are. And I'll give you an example. In 1954, when we played Christmas Addicts with the great Oscar Robertson, we played them in the finals of the semi-state. By the way, we beat them 65 to 52, which was the largest defeat uh, point-wise that Ray Crow had as a coach at, uh, at Addicts. But anyway, Woody went over the assignments down in the dressing room here at Butler Fieldhouse then, and he said, fellas, I want to tell you, when he wound up, he said, fellas, I want to tell you something. I understand this addicts ball club is awfully fast, and they can shoot the eyes out of a bucket, and a couple of them can jump up and take a quarter off the top of a backboard. Bob Engel, one of our players, said, Woody, that may be true, but they're going to have to prove it to us. So that's the type of attitude that he brought to us, uh, never expecting to win, but never expecting to lose, and, and uh, let the chips fall where they may. And we learned that lesson early by Mark Combs because we were undefeated in the eighth grade. Went to the eighth grade tournament, we had defeated Osgood twice, they doubled the score on us. We're crying in the dressing room after it's over. And the best information Mark Combs ever gave us, said, fellas, I don't blame you for crying, that's fine, get it out. I just want you to remember this, never ever go on the court thinking your previous games are going to mean anything in this game. You can't walk on the court thinking you're going to win automatically because that other team thinks the same thing. So did your coaches make playing basketball fun? We, we truly uh, were having fun. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was such a pleasure, and, and uh, people knew who we were. 
I, you know, that was something new for kids from Pierceville uh, and Milan. Uh, I remember the first game when he kicked those seven seniors off. And, and this sticks in my mind. He kicked seven seniors off. Bob Engel and I came up the starting five, brought the two best players back. We had not defeated Batesville since 1946, and this is 1953. We beat Batesville that next game. The next day at school, when I walked in to one of the class, the first class, all of my classmates stood up and clapped. And I said, man, this is pretty neat. <laughs> so uh, just little things like that uh, were, were so important. We're here in Hinkle Fieldhouse. Take us back. What was it like when you first played here? The first time we uh, came into Butler Fieldhouse, uh, Hinkle Fieldhouse now, was our junior year when we played the semi-state here. Uh, both years we played the semi-state in the state finals here. And we're 15, 16-year-old kids, and we're driving up. You get a practice on Friday, okay? So we're driving up for practice, and we've got our bags packed and everything. And uh, of course, Woody graduated from here, so he, before we went downstairs in the dressing room, he took us by the floor. And we're joking and, you know, having a good time, and, and we got next to the floor, and everybody just stopped. It was like a glass wall was there. And man, this is a big place, you know. Everybody just looked around. Bob Engel again said, put a lot of hay in this place, couldn't you? And it kind of broke the thing up. But the thing I remember about the floor in practice is that when you dribbled the ball, you could feel the vibration in your feet. It was such a sensitive floor, and the background was so uh, uh, nice to shoot from. It wasn't just a goal sitting out in the, uh, in the middle. I loved it. I loved the floor. Loved it. I still think it's the best floor I've ever played on, and I've played throughout the world. Tell me about the crowds, how you felt playing in front of big crowds in the state tournament. Well, the crowd didn't bother us as much, or didn't bother me as much anyway. Uh, I, I had seen the semi-state game here back in 1948, and honestly, once you're on the floor, you, you, the crowd doesn't, it's just noise. Uh, I don't remember seeing anybody in particular. I never looked for anybody in particular. I always tried in warm-up to think that there's somebody there watching me and I wanted to be good. So I tried to hit every shot or try to do things right. But as far as the crowd and, and the noise, uh, it actually was irrelevant uh, as far as the game was concerned. Exciting, but nothing from, nothing from uh, being afraid or, or scared or nervous. Give us a sense of the environment of playing in the state finals here. The crowd, the sidelines, the cheerleaders, the pomp, the ceremony of it all. What was that like for you? Well, uh, of course, we didn't see a lot of that because we're playing and we're in a timeout. But, but the excitement that the crowd brought, uh, you know, you call a timeout, 15,000 people are standing screaming their heads off. I mean, that does get your attention. But you, you have to pay attention to what's going on in the huddle. Uh, to give an idea of the interest and, and how people were interested in coming. You could buy a ticket for $3.50. Let's go to the state finals. Two games that morning, two winners play that night. $3.50, and I talked to people that paid $50 to get in. That's the type of interest that was generated. They estimated that 90% of the adult population 
watched or listened to that final game. We have people come in the restaurant yet, and they come in and they say, we didn't have a TV, so we went down to the local store. It was full of people. We stood outside and we were freezing, but we watched that game. All right, let's talk about the last shot in the 1954 state championship game. What did Coach Woods say in the huddle? Okay, here's what happened in the huddle. I didn't say I'll make it like in the movie Hoosiers. I thought that was a good line, though. We, we got the ball back with 48 seconds to go, and they let me stand at midcourt, scores tied, 30 to 30, until there are 18 seconds to go. We get in the huddle, and Woody says, okay, here's what we're going to do, fellas. And if you follow the coach's instructions, everything turns out well, right? He says, Kraft, you take the ball out of bounds, throw it to Bob, me. And he said, Bob, you just dribble around until there are five or six seconds to go, and then you make your move and try to shoot, whether it's a layup or jump shot, and leave enough time. If you happen to miss it, maybe we could tip it in. And Gene White, our starting center, said, okay, if we're going to do that, why don't we move on the left-hand side and clear that out? And Woody said, that's a good idea. That's what I said, let's go over it again. He says, Kraft, you take it out and throw it to Bob. Guess who took the ball out of bounds? I did. But when the ball goes through, they never think about those mistakes in the end. But that's exactly what happened in the huddle. And what did winning the state championship mean to you? I think the real important thing about winning the state championship is that it gave students an opportunity to go to college. Um, The previous four years, perhaps, 15, 16, 17 total students in four years went to college. Of the 30 in my graduating class, 17 of us went to college. Nine of the 10 that dressed went to college. That's the important thing. And then obviously the aftermath, uh, if we hadn't won, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you all. But the aftermath of that produced the movie Hoosiers. And with that movie, it took it worldwide. There's a museum in Milan about the 1954 experience. That little museum in the last 21 years has had visitors from all 50 states and 27 foreign countries, including Saudi Arabia, Japan, New Zealand, Australia. It just exploded worldwide. When they had the World Games here, Spain had never qualified before. That was in one or 2001 or three. National Magazine writer wanted to know if they could come to Plump's last shot and interview me, and I said, sure. He brought a couple of players along in the middle of the interview, and <clears throat> this player said, you're the reason I started playing ball. Thank you, Bobby, for your time, and we appreciate you joining us here on the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame podcast. As this episode comes to a conclusion, we remind you to follow the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame. Join us online at hoopshall.com, H-O-O-P-S-H-A-L-L.com. You can find out information about our upcoming events, about our 14,000-square-foot museum, more information on Bobby and all of our other inductees, and visit our online gift shop. We also encourage you to follow the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram, as well as subscribing to this podcast. You can do so through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, and Stitcher. Bobby Plump, the latest edition, the latest legend here on the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame podcast. I'm your host, Chris May. Thanks so much for joining us 